All right, welcome to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I am managing editor of Providence, Drew Griffin, and we're beginning the podcasts again, uh, you know, restarting them. We took a um, uh, protracted uh, absence and break over the summer, and uh, we're starting back into the fall with gusto. And our, our first kind of guest as, as we relaunch the podcast is Dr. Joshua Walker. Joshua Walker is the global head of strategic initiatives in Japan at the Eurasia Group, uh, the world's leading geopolitical risk consultancy, and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund's Asia program and focused on Japan. And more importantly, I think most importantly, he is a a friend and contributing editor of Providence, uh, a journal of uh, Christianity and American foreign policy, and a frequent writer at ProvidenceMag.com. So, Josh, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Drew. So I wanted to introduce our readers, introduce our listeners to you and kind of what your work is there at the Eurasia Group. So if you could just kind of fill us in on kind of what you do on your regular day, what your day job is. I know you travel all around the world and you uh, are frequently emailing me early in the morning from some other part in the globe, uh, sending in submissions. So tell us a little bit about uh, what you do at the Eurasia Group. You know, I think when you live in D.C., it becomes normal that you don't just have one hat. Uh, And so, uh, you know, I, I have my day job at the Eurasia Group which focuses, as you said, on geopolitical risk. Most people say, what does that actually mean? It means when you have political elections around the world, when you have problems around the world, how do you factor that in from a business perspective? Am I making an investment in Japan and there's an election going on? What does that mean? Well, Japan's a bad example. It's probably the most stable geopolitical nation in the world, not so much like Brazil recently or Mexico, the elections before that. Uh, So that's what I focus on. But more importantly, I focus on strategic initiatives, which can basically be anything on any given day. As you said, I travel a lot to Japan where I spend about one week a month. Uh, and then I also travel for other uh, things that I do, whether it's as a professor or a recovering, ac- uh, recovering academic, recovering diplomat, uh, or also in terms of all the different fellow hats that I wear here in D.C. Right. So you grew up in Japan. I did right? grow up in Japan. So, from- so you've got kind of a unique perspective being an American. And, and what brought your parents to Japan? You're not Japanese, right? So what's what brought your parents to Japan? Yeah, your listeners can't see that I'm about 6'3", blue-eyed, brown-haired. Right. I've been called uh, about as American as apple pie. If they only knew <laughs> that despite being part of... Uh, uh, the uh, George Washington's chapter of the Sons of the American Revolution. Uh, I actually grew up in Japan where my parents are Southern Baptist missionaries. And so they've been there for uh, almost 40 years now. Uh, I grew up there. It's kind of weird to be a white guy growing up in uh, Japan, speaking Japanese the way I do. Uh, But I didn't really choose Japan. My parents chose it for me. But uh, I certainly, uh, international affairs has been in my blood since I was young. Uh, I always thought I was going to be a pastor like my dad. But in some ways, I think about the work I do in uh, the international world, whether it's been at the State Department or whether it's as an academic or now in the business world, as being part of my professional calling and ministry as well. That's great. That's uh, what's interesting is that you've uh, kind of come back to Japan. I mean, you you grew up there. Maybe you wanted to head in a different direction, but um, I think maybe God in His providence—I can say that, right? That's, that's, <laughs> that's part of what we do—has um, kind of brought you back. Um, I, I want to know, like, uh, from your perspective, in the time that you spent in Japan, it's it's you know the um, kind of uh, Asian geopolitical arena is is just um, fired up right now. There's so much going on with North Korea. There's so much going on uh, with with China, and, and specifically, I want to focus in on China a little bit. You know, we've covered in Providence talking about like their their rising kind of sinification uh, program on a, on the interior of the country, where they're focusing on almost new renewed religious persecution and kind of uh, ideological enforcement of the kind of communist agenda within the country. But internationally, they are. Um, uh, really showing their te- 
teeth in a, in a way that uh, is disturbing to most kind of uh, risk analysts like yourself. Uh, when you're looking at the region, their um, uh, procedures into the South China Sea building uh, these islands, these landing grounds, uh, taking over kind of international waters and uh, extending their reach into the region. So uh, from the perspective of just the, the country that you have, the, the kind of closest relationship with Japan, I mean, how does Japan as a neighbor of, of China in that region view the kind of growing China menace, if you will? You know, I think it's interesting because to take a step back, when you think about where the world is heading in, in the 21st century, it's clear that the world is heading towards Asia. Whereas in the past, we could have said it would have been a transatlantic century or uh, maybe be an American century, we're clearly heading to an Asian century. And I think that's clear in terms of demographics, over half of the world's population, well more than half of the world's economic growth, uh, maybe faster is in Asia. When you think about the major players, uh, you already mentioned China, the rising power, the other rising democracy is uh, is India. And then in the middle of that, you have Japan, which is the third largest economy in the world. Uh, remember, one of the U.S. closest allies, when you think about where any strike or military operations would be launched in Asia from a U.S. perspective, they're almost all in Japanese bases. Uh, because there's a there's a sharing agreement there, and if anything happened on the Korean Peninsula, you need Japan. And then uh, add on top of all that, given the uncertainty here in Washington about the politics uh, with President Trump, uh, the one international ally that has stayed with him throughout, and no matter what's happened, uh, Shinzo Abe, Prime Minister Abe, who will soon become the longest-serving Japanese Prime Minister, has been his closest ally throughout. This is not a situation like French President Macron, who they had a bromance early on, and then it kind of <laughs> went went sour, or Justin Trudeau of Canada, or Theresa May. Yeah, you yeah, know, lots right. of things. You All know. these uh, uh, attractive kind of liberal <laughs> leaders that have romances with Trump that sour, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what to say about that. You know, when it comes to Theresa May or Angela Merkel, there was just no chemistry <laughs> there. But when it comes to strong men around the world, Trump seems to get along well with them, whether that's uh, President Putin of Russia or President Erdogan of Turkey or even Bibi Netanyahu of Israel as well. So I think Japan has a unique place there. You know, when I grew up in Japan in the 1980s, uh, it was kind of the dominant place. Everyone wrote books about Japan as number one. It looked like the big trade war of that time was going to be between the U.S. and Japan, somehow China substituted there. Obviously, it's a much larger country, over a billion people. Economically speaking, certainly in our lifetime, it'll overtake us very quickly. Japan has seen this a lot earlier. And I think in the 1990s, Japan experienced what we're currently experiencing in the U.S., which is to say, wait a minute, there's a problem. The Chinese system and the way that they uh, kind of have an authoritarian uh, system led by the Communist Party uh, is something that's a problem for us in liberal societies and have, have a real uh, problem about that. And I think the interesting thing here is that despite both being Asian nations, you couldn't get a bigger contrast between the Chinese and the Japanese. Uh, what's funny is the Chinese in many ways are much more similar to the Americans than maybe Japanese are. But when it comes to alliances, you can't find an alliance closer than the U.S.-Japan alliance. And so I think the Japanese are very concerned. They're looking at the trade war and tensions between the U.S. and, and China and saying, okay, well, whatever happens is going to hurt us because our economic well-being on the front lines of, of right next to China. And also what, what, what my boss at Eurasia Group, uh, Ian Bremer, is called the G zero world. The idea here is that the world now is no longer simply superpower America. It's basically every region for itself. And in every region, there's kind of a rising regional power. In Asia, it clearly is China particularly because Japan, because of its own constitution and because of its history with World War II, doesn't have the same military capabilities, particularly offensive capabilities. So therefore, you're really left with China. And even though Russia is a big player, on the Asian sphere, it's just not as big. And so therefore, if the U.S. is not a player and not a balancer in Asia, it means that Japan is left alone and we leave them into the sphere of orbit of China. That is a lot of conversation there. What happens? If it's all about America first, uh, will America basically kind of withdraw and say, whatever happens in Asia stays in Asia. We don't care. We got the Pacific to protect us. 
that's problematic for a lot of our allies. So as an expert in the kind of Asian arena, what do you make of this, it seems kind of uh, uh, inconsistent policy on the part of the United States in terms of they, they have this kind of love-hate relationship with being involved in, in kind of the Asian theater. They, they want to talk to North Korea, but then they they will uh, threaten to cancel the like South Korean trade agreement. They they um, uh, will meet with um, uh, the pre- President Trump will meet with the president of China and yet, you know, um, engage in a trade war uh, with China. How do you um, how do you view is there a consistency in kind of American foreign policy not wanting to be part of like regional partnerships like the TPP or kind of being involved as a, as a leader in that theater? Have they kind of given that theater over to players like China or is there still a space for them to occupy? And is that region still looking to the U.S. to provide that kind of leadership? The U.S. and there's a real fear of all of our allies, not just J- Japan or Korea or Australia, but many other countries that kind of maybe don't meet, make the tier of treaty alliance, but are certainly allied with the U.S. Um, the trouble is, what's interesting is that President Trump has been cons- remarkably consistent when it comes to his viewpoints of alliances and his n- kind of transactional nature. He doesn't really care for long-term alliances. He's made it very clear, and he says, "Look, America first. I'll do whatever it takes uh, to kind of focus on that." The trouble is, the way that the system was set up after World War II when basically the world uh, kind of relied on the U.S. to rebuild it, whether it's the Marshall Plan in Europe or whether the hub-and-spoke models in Asia, uh, is that the entire world system is dependent on the U.S. economy. And in some ways, we are also dependent on the global supply chain. When you think about all the geotechnology uh, kind of competition that's currently going on between the U.S. and China, it really kind of comes down to the fact that you and I and Americans enjoy uh, iPhones and all this technology is being paid for very cheaply by Chinese labor. If you get into a trade with the Chinese and you pull that out, are we as Americans going to be willing to pay a higher price for national security? Now, during during World War II and certainly during the Cold War, we were willing to do that. But China is a little bit more crafty adversary than the Soviet Union ever was. The Soviet Union was undoubtedly the evil empire that Ronald Reagan called it. China has two faces. There's a lot of positive attributes and there's a lot of things that people say about Chinese culture and all these other aspects. But when it comes to the Chinese state, and particularly when it comes to uh, kind of geotechnology and the geoeconomic space, this is not the security realm. Uh, there's some real problems. And as we saw just last week in the South China Sea, you had a, a kind of a Chinese naval vessel go right next to our naval vessels, really challenging the concept of the free and open uh, waterways that the U.S. has kind of had for a long time, kind of being the lifeblood of our economy. When you think about how much of our daily goods are shipped through that one area of the world, uh, it's astounding. And to think about what a real war would look like between China and the U.S., it's almost unfathomable. You know, when I contrast the two regions, I look at that are most important to U.S. Uh, interests. It's the Middle East and East and Asia. And what's interesting here is it seems very highly likely there'll be another conflict in the Middle East. It just there's always something going on, whether it's the Saudis this week or the Iranians next week or Turkey the week after. Uh, but those are regional conflicts. They really are not going to subsume the entire world in them. Asia, you have every major kind of the, the cockpit of great power conflict here, where you have the Chinese, the Russians, the Americans, the Japanese. Every power you can imagine has interest here. Uh, and I think the, the trouble is no matter what happens in the next uh, decade, uh, clearly this is going to have implications. And so what we're seeing right now by the United States is trying to say, okay, we're in the dominant position. Let's try to really stick it to the Chinese on the economic front and say, it's been unfair. You have a deficit. You guys have supplied too much uh, stuff at a cheap price. That's not fair. And also, particularly when it comes to chip manufacturers, when it comes to technology or the 5G network, uh, we're no longer going to let the Chinese do it at a cheaper cost because you have an unfair advantage. You're subsidizing it. The great kind of Chinese fire 
firewall keeps all competitors out and allows Chinese companies to have an unfair advantage against American or Japanese or even European companies, that's changing. So I think that when you take that economic layer and add it to the security layer, you've got a very confusing situation that probably most Americans say, who cares? Let's just not deal with it and focus on our, our home front. Right. Uh, I want to shift gears just a little bit before we kind of move on to another region uh, of the world. And talking about Japan and China both, that, you know, a, a lot of people who would, would point to them as kind of emerging threats also point to the fact that kind of demographics are our destiny, that there are, there are looming uh, demographic crises in both countries, in that you have uh, within China the result of the uh, decades-old one-child uh, one policy uh, that has resulted in a, a massive gender imbalance uh, within the nation. And then in, in Japan, you have of um, rising ages and low birth rates that is is moving into an increasingly aging population that's more and more reliant on automation and is, as, has less and less availability of, of younger workers. So factoring both of those uh, factors into to the nations, what, if you could kind of prognosticate and, and like project out into the future, what is... Uh, with the emerging threats, how do those uh, demographic realities begin to kind of impact on their the way that they comport themselves on the world stage? You know, it's interesting. You know, a lot of people would say exactly what you'd said that demographics is is destiny, and a lot of people used to say the same thing about geography. What's interesting is the current 21st century looks a lot more like the 19th century than it did in the 20th century. What I mean by that, it's a really a rise of empires. And when you think about the Chinese state or the Middle Kingdom as they describe themselves, they were kind of non-existent in the 20th century. They were kind of all always the victims of whether it's European or Japanese imperialism. Uh, now they're coming back into the global scene, and it looks a lot more when you think about the One Belt, One Road initiative, mm -hmm. that Silk Road. That's what, you know, during, during Roman times or during Chinese imperial times uh, that we, we used to talk about, that seems to be the case. And so while I don't think that demographics in this day and age of technology are necessarily uh, destiny in the way they used to be, it certainly is the case that they're having kind of perverse uh, incentive structures for both sides. What I mean by that is uh, in in China, you don't have a, despite the, the Communist Party's uh, official uh, attempt to try to show a happy face, there's some real problems in China when it comes to uh, the Uyghur population or Muslim mm -hmm. populations that we've just had some recent articles focusing on them. Uh, when you think about what the Chinese state is trying to do, they look much more powerful along their coastlines where you have major urban uh, environments. When you think about the South China Sea, they look very dominant. And when it comes to Taiwan Straits, these other issues, but when it comes to their hinterland, when it comes to the, the Muslim populations in Xinjiang and throughout the kind of the, the Central uh, Asia and, and Eurasia, it's a very different ballgame. Japan's very different because Japan is an island, obviously. And actually, from a Japanese point of view, the, 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 the shrinking demographics is actually, relatively speaking, a good thing because actually there's a stability that's there. When you think about one of the top robotics and AI and kind of uh, geotechnology powers, it certainly would be Japan. They're not at the same cutting edge as American private sector companies or even the Chinese state. They fall somewhere in between. But as their economy has more or less stagnated, the population dropping off means that their economy from a per capita point of view is doing pretty well and if you harness that with kind of innovation from the US or even some levels of immigration from Southeast Asia maybe partnering with India there's hope there and I think particularly uh, as you already referenced China's getting a lot older and they're going through this kind of bubble it looks like where basically the Chinese state has basically been able to 
trade privacy and be able to trade freedom from its population for economic growth. If that economic growth slows, we've got a real problem. So while I'm not uh, kind of a, a, a doomsday uh, scenario believer, I tend to think that China's bark is a lot bigger than its bite. And I tend to think from an American point of view, you don't want to create a self-fulfilling prophecy by creating a monster out of something that doesn't exist. But you have to recognize that fundamentally from a uh, kind of a structural point of view, we are set up on a collision course. And in some ways, it's much better to be the United States that has allies around the world and people come to the U.S. as kind of the, 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 the last resort or the offices of last resort. We don't need to be the world's policemen, maybe, but we still need to be able to create that, like, keep that international order. And I think the challenge right now is the U.S. seems to be less interested than we've ever seen in maintaining that order. Therefore, countries like Japan are stepping up on their own to say, this is actually in our interest. It's in your interest too, America. And it's because we've got to find some way of countering the Chinese who are throwing massive amounts of money, massive amounts of uh, constraints on countries throughout uh, the developing world, particularly in the Belt and Road area, running all the way from Asia all the way into Europe through Africa as well. So I'm visiting with uh, Dr. Joshua Walker with the Eurasia Group, and we're discussing uh, China. We're discussing the U.S.'s uh, place in the world and a global leadership role. And uh, we're going to take a, a kind of a quick break and then come back and talk about how the U.S. kind of uses and leverages that uh, global leadership in regards to Turkey. Uh, Joshua has written a, a great number of articles in regards to uh, kind of Turkey and its uh, relationship with uh, Europe and its relationship with the United States. Uh, so we'll come right back with Dr. Joshua Walker. Welcome back to the Provcast, the podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I'm managing editor Drew Griffin. I'm, I'm here returning with uh, Dr. Joshua Walker of the Eurasia Group and the uh, German Marshall Fund and contributing editor here with Providence. We've been discussing uh, Asia, his kind of area of expertise, one of his areas of expertise and, and kind of risk consultancy and talking about Japan and China and the U.S.'s role in the Asian theater. We're going to switch gears slightly over to uh, the, the Euro of the Eurasia Group. <laughs> <laughs> right, we've talked about Asia. You're the Eurasia group. We'll talk about the Euro part of um, of that in Europe and and look at Turkey. Um, so President Erdogan and President Trump have had sort of a uh, love-hate relationship over the years, right? So they uh, initially, President Trump had, was kind of uh, had positive things to say about uh, President Erdogan, had this uh, uh, sort of, um, I think, a fist bump or a high five or something at a G20 summit at some point. But then, of course, when um, you had the uh, uh, Christian pastor who was who was imprisoned there, this this kind of immediate imposition of, of sanctions on part of the um, uh, U.S. government against Turkey to try and uh, force his release, and there's been a lot of criticism. Erdogan has responded kind of with all of this kind of vitriol against the United States and, and telling people to get rid of their dollars and 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 um, kind of um, accept uh, Turkish currency. And uh, just recently, just this last week, we've got the Saudi journalist, uh, Jamal Khashoggi, who just all disappeared, you know, went to the uh, Saudi Arabian consulate there in, in Istanbul and all of a sudden just was never heard from again. Uh, so talk us through a little bit about the, just the the potential threat that maybe the Turkey um, uh, presents to Europe and to NATO, and, and just kind of the complexities of that relationship that the United States United States seems to have right now uh, with Turkey. 
I mean, I could do an entire dissertation on all the questions. Okay, you well, let's, threw let's in there, just so. leave it at a, yeah. you know, like a, a <laughs> Why does Turkey little, matter? Like, yeah. yeah, right, yeah. I mean, look, Turkey has mattered for literally thousands of years. I think most of us in America only think about Turkey in the geographic sense right now, but think about sitting in the most strategic uh, location in the entire world, right? This is where Alexander the Great had to break the Gordian knot that kind of opened up his empire uh, for the Ottoman Empire over 600 years uh, of kind of, you know, managing this part of the world. It really represents in some ways uh, the last Islamic empire. And so what President Erdogan represents is kind of a true feeling within Turkey that Turkey needs to reclaim its great glory of the past. And I think that Turkey and Erdogan in particular are kind of a, a canary in the coal mine of what is to come. Many of us were very optimistic about Erdogan, who's been in power now for close to 16 years, because he came in with the language of democracy, the language of coming to the European Union, uh, Turkey's Western journey. I like to always say that uh, the Turks have been on a Western journey since literally Genghis Khan. They've always been going westward. They got to the gates of Vienna. They kind of got shut down there, but they've always been trying to get back in, whether it's the European Union or whether it's NATO. So Turkey matters, and its size and also uh, its strategic location that kind of keeps the, the Russians outside of the warm water ports of the Mediterranean. Mediterranean and right there on this major megapolis of Istanbul or Constantinople, if you're mm -hmm. still thinking about the Ottoman Empire. Uh, but the reason it matters today for the United States is uh, here's our strongest ally uh, that we've ever had in this part of the world, that we are fundamentally on opposite sides of pretty much every equation right now. When it comes to the Syria conflict, uh, when it comes to uh, you know the, the domestic politics in Turkey and also in the U.S., you mentioned the pastor, Pastor Brunson, that's being held in Turkey, uh, Fethullah Gulen, who was accused of the coup, uh, a failed coup a couple years ago. He's living in Pennsylvania. There's a lot of problems there. And there's always been a kind of a strong streak of anti-Americanism uh, in Turkey. I had the privilege of serving in Turkey. I was a Fulbright scholar in Turkey, also served as the State Department there. Uh, we've always had trouble there, but I've never quite seen it the way it is now. Uh, and I think that the Saudi journalist you just mentioned is kind of the tip of the iceberg in some ways. Uh, it has nothing to do with Turkey, obviously, but it does represent uh, a country and a region that is really in a tailspin. And, you know, with lack of U.S. leadership in general, or lack of interest even, uh, the kind of what happens in a jungle when it comes to power politics there. One of the areas in which uh, sometimes I, I find it easy to critique the administration, and in Providence, you know, as an editorial position, we, we try and walk the middle line, right? You know, we call balls balls and strike strikes in terms of, of administration policy. And, um, but but I, I see often a, a pattern uh, with this administration. It's not just with this administration. It's something that I think is a um, kind of a trap that... Uh, uh, presidents can fall into is, is the, the tendency to view decisions in kind of an atomistic and kind of an isolationist way in terms of just isolating it from the rest of the world, right? Looking at it in a vacuum of, of how we should respond to Turkey or we here they're holding Pastor Brunson, let's just impose sanctions. But one of the things that I, I kind of want you to, to look into and kind of maybe flesh out for us is, you know, politics abhors a vacuum. So if, if the United States isn't involved, if the United States isn't, isn't working with these nations or, or partnering with these nations or kind of engaging diplomatically, um, that vacuum gets filled pretty quickly by other actors. And if we push away uh, nations, if we push away Turkey, or if we push away um, uh, previous kind of allies, they end up often going into the arms of others. So to talk about how the changing relationship the United States has had with Turkey has probably uh, changed the uh, diplomatic relationship that Turkey has now with, with Russia or with even Israel or with Qatar or other nations in the region. 
I mean, what's interesting about it, you know, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. Um, when there is a power vacuum, it's almost certain that allies that traditionally would come to the U.S. as the first resort basically say, okay, America's not interested. Where am I going to look? So when you look at Turkey, it's a great example. Uh, if the U.S. takes a strong stand uh, in the Middle East, whether that's on the Iran deal uh, or whether that's on trying to figure out peace in the Middle East between the Israelis and the Palestinians or even in terms of uh, saying that uh, President Assad of Syria must go, there's been no stronger friend than Turkey right next to us. And they have the second largest military force of NATO. Uh, they back it up with actions. This is not certain European countries that basically talk a big game. And then when push comes to shove, they want nothing to do with it. Now, certainly when it comes to the Iraq wars, Turkey's been on different sides of the ledger because they know what that region has, has led to. They know the chaos that has kind of led to the current constellation of problems throughout the Middle East. Uh, but right now in particular, uh, because of the troubles we have with Turkey, and mostly because we're focusing on, on this from a you know self-interested domestic policy point of view, as opposed to the Europeans who oftentimes look at Turkey more from their own interest point of view, trying to keep Syrian refugees out of Europe and keeping them in Turkey. Um, we've certainly pushed them right into the Russian camp, uh, and particularly when it comes to Syria. Originally, Moscow and Ankara couldn't see eye to eye on anything. But now when you think about what's happening in Syria, there's usually a constellation between Ankara, Tehran, uh, and Moscow. And that kind of axis we haven't seen in a long time before. Uh, there's a stylistic element here of kind of strongman leaders that Erdogan and Putin seem to get along well. Uh, a couple years ago, the, the Turks shot down a, a Russian airplane. Now they're pretty close. Uh, historically speaking, this is not going to last. The Russian Empire and Turkish Empire have always gone at it. Uh, but right now, because the U.S. is kind of trying to punish Turkey, Turkey's basically said, you know what? Let's look to China for economic power. Let's look to uh, Russia for geopolitical power. Uh, and they'll play in the Middle East. You'd mentioned Qatar as well. Uh, clearly, when it comes to Sunni powers, the two largest powers are Turkey and Saudi Arabia. They're not getting along at all right now, as we saw by the case of the journalists. Uh, but they're certainly kind of taking out uh, more and more risky positions, uh, and they're willing to kind of play the long game because they're in this region forever, whereas the U.S. kind of can play when it wants to. And so, you know, the trouble with U.S. foreign policy is we're sometimes so often transactional and short-term, we don't think about the long-term game, and we don't realize how much, how costly it is to have reactive as opposed to proactive foreign policy. And one of the fascinating fundamentals of, of globalism is that it's, uh, while it connects the United States to the rest of the world, I mean, it connects other nations to each other as well. And what when the United States pulls out of agreements or when the United States uh, seems to kind of distance itself from global leadership, what you often find, in, in, and there have been writers that have been talking about this, is there's this, this kind of um, growing collection of isolated nations that have been isolated by the United States that are looking around at each other and saying, hey, you know, the U.S. isn't talking to you. Oh, they're not talking to us either. Well, why don't we partner and kind of get together? So you have, you have Turkey, you've got Iran, you've got Russia, you've got Venezuela, uh, for nations that are all on the outs with the United States, all have kind of adversarial relationships with the United States, and are kind of making a common uh, enemy, you know, and joining around that the, the uh, they may or may not, as individual nations, have a whole lot in common or have a whole lot that they necessarily um, uh, culturally or even maybe even economically uh, can partner with, but they, they have a common enemy in the United States. And so you see a rising kind of, um, not I wouldn't say like a, a Warsaw Pact kind of thing, but you have this kind of new formation of, of these packs of nations, these axes of nations that are kind of forming against the United States, making kind of a common partnership um, against us. I mean, do you think that that's um, a, 
a potential kind of growing threat. No, I really do. I think what's interesting about what you just described is these are not natural axes of international right. relations. And one of the strengths of the U.S. is because we're in the North American sphere, we never were the most threatening of any of these nations. So we're able to be the balancer in Asia and the Middle East and Europe precisely because we are not a European, a Middle Eastern or Asian power exclusively. But increasingly by our own actions and by our own proclamations, whether by tweet or otherwise, uh, it's causing these actors to actually come together. And it's the easiest thing to, to bring people together is finding an other, uh, kind of an us versus them, where you say, okay, our common enemy is the United States and the lack of power. And when you think about the way that uh, the Turkish economy has been in a tailspin recently and the way that President Erdogan has really uh, rallied the Turkish population together against the interest rate lobby or so-called other groups, um, it's very easy for Putin to step in and say, you're right, we also are aggrieved, let's work together. And right. even if they don't actually have that many common cause, they actually have a common cause in terms of their uh, disgruntledness with the international system and saying, we need to change the UN Security Council. We need to change the, the system of governance that allows capitalists to do this. And so really there's not been many American presidents, not just the Trump administration, that are making the case for globalization or even for kind of the open system. And so as a result, we're creating more fortresses, whether it's Fortress Europe or whether it's Fortress in the US. And I think that's where countries like Turkey fall between the cracks, quite literally and figuratively, uh, between Europe uh, and Asia. And having a country like Turkey on your side can be, can matter, except the problem is getting them on our side takes a lot of work. They're very frustrating and difficult to deal with sometimes. I contend that it's important and it matters, but a lot of Americans right now don't feel that way. And they say, let's just throw our hands up and get, get rid of them because they're too difficult to deal with. Let the Russians deal with that problem. When you see that there's, there are really common characteristics other than kind of being isolated uh, by the United States among these nations, Venezuela, Iran, Turkey, uh, Russia, uh, that they are kind of, they're bad global actors. They're kind of on the fringes of the global economic environment. They all have kind of not so stable economies. You know, they all are just, they're very much uh, um, kind of inwardly focused and not always uh, able to to trade or kind of take advantage of the global economic market. So there, there makes some sense that um, you know, they're on the edge of the sandbox and everyone else is on the inside, but they can kind of partner together and, uh, and uh, work together, I think, for, for our ill here in the United States. One of the things that you kind of bring up, and as we kind of begin to kind of come to a close, I, I want us to think about that, um, you know, oftentimes, you know, globalization has this, this bad ring to a lot of people. You know, they look over the last 15 years, we're celebrating just this... Um, just this fall, kind of the 15th anniversary of the kind of the declaration of, of war, right, um, against um, uh, the, the kind of second Iraq war and, and the beginning of kind of uh, um, uh, military exercises. So we've, we've had 15 uh, plus years of, of war there in the, um, uh, in the Iraq and in the Middle East and Afghanistan. Af in Afghanistan, and you see that you know people kind of equate being involved in the global environment and in globalization as some sort of like it's a military commitment, right? That it's you know we're sending our our uh, sons and daughters overseas to to die and fight in places that we can't even pronounce. Uh, but there there are other elements to globalization that are kind of less violent, and if anything, engaging in them prevents violence, right? The the more that we fund the the, the State Department, hopefully the less we have to fund the Defense Department, you know, that these things are kind of preventative. So what kind of argument is there, uh, you know, for Christians, especially as we think about our role of kind of uh, engaging in the world um, to not just look at geopolitics in this kind of military hard power way? What, what's the role for soft power um, among um, in American foreign policy? 
I mean, this may not be a, a popular point of view, but I tend to think that the, the Bible has some of the best lessons for international relations in terms of treating others as you want to be treated uh, yourself, whether that's an alliance management perspective or not. I think the trouble is that if you try to isolate yourself, and the United States did this right after World War I, uh, which we're currently celebrating the 100 years of, right? Uh, it didn't work out so well for us because that interwar period uh, between World War I and World War II is some of the ugliest that, that this world has ever seen. The rise of fascism, the rise of strongman, and ultimately it took a lot more blood, sweat, and tears of the United States uh, to go back in after World War II. Uh, and the lesson that we thought we had learned after World War II was never again, that we're not going to allow uh, things like the Holocaust, we're not going to allow the rise of fascism in, in both Europe and Asia to predominate, and that our system of government, which may not be the, the prettiest as we're seeing, uh, is ultimately the best form to allow human beings to, to focus on the pursuit of liberty and, and happiness and freedom. And I think on the international side, uh, as Christians and being defined not just in terms of turning the other cheek, but from a Christian realism perspective, having the understanding that proactive diplomacy uh, takes into account all aspects of power, soft, hard, smart, there's like different you know, adjectives mm -hmm. we can put there, right. but we need to be engaged in all of those. I think if you try to simply isolate ourselves and say, we've got the two uh, oceans of the Pacific and Atlantic, which used to protect us, given the, the way that geography doesn't matter in the same way it used to, with cyber, the interconnectedness of our economies, and the way that through our cell phones we can be connected to literally any part of the world, we don't really have a choice anymore. And so even if we want to retreat into our homes and, and, and our churches and to try to avoid the world out there, uh, we're kind of called to be in that world. And I think that's where, as Christians who care about U.S. foreign policy, we need to be engaged. We need to be educated. You can't simply walk into a place and tell people how to do things. There are a long histories. There are long traditions that are there. And when I think about kind of, uh, kind of Jesus's own thinking on these things, he didn't just simply say, go in and just destroy everything. He said, go in and be with the people that are there and find a way of kind of really making fishers of men uh, of those pieces. And I think there are a lot of lessons that sometimes we try to separate because of our own domestic politics. We say, well, let, let, let your Christianity stay at home on a Sunday. And then when you're a foreign policy practitioner on Monday, put on that suit and try to divorce those two things. I don't think you can divorce them that easily. There are ethical, moral arguments for being engaged in a systematic way around the world, not just with boots on the ground, but also with our economic trade policies and also uh, through our American education system and all these things that people still continue to rely on the United States for. No, it's, uh, you know, you, um, we didn't pay you for this, but you, you had a very good kind of advertisement for our upcoming fall issue in which we kind of examine uh, how we are back where we uh, once were in 1918, where we're celebrating the centennial of, of World War I and, and kind of pointing backwards to some of the themes and some of the issues that we were discussing back then that we're still discussing today, right? And that the United States has this burden that's kind of placed on it to kind of, to kind of push for liberty and push for um, the, the expansion of liberty. And it is somewhat of a burden, that glo global leadership, but we've seen what's happened when we let that burden go, right? When it rolls back down the hill and, and, and it takes the step back. The, the, the massive casualties that are inflicted uh, upon humanity and just the, the tremendous cost that we have to bear. And so um, I think that's a, that's a very timely uh, debate, a very timely kind of discussion. And, and for whatever reason, uh, we seem to have to be reminded of it every generation that this, you know, this is our, we're the watchman on the walls of freedom, right? And we are, it's, it's our watch and it's our time and it's, uh, we abandon those, those posts kind of at our peril. So Providence is a, uh, you know, quarterly journal, right? We release a quarterly print journal. We release daily at ProvidenceMag.com. You can find uh, Josh Walker's uh, articles on ProvidenceMag.com. 
Com, and hopefully soon in, in Providence, uh, the print uh, edition. And I want to direct all of you to uh, our website, prominencemag.com, and, 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 and point out to you the upcoming uh, Christianity and National Security Conference on November 2nd and 3rd at Georgetown. If you're in the Washington, D.C. area, we invite you uh, to attend to that. You can find details at prominencemag.com. Josh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.